Genesis 33. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Halohe Israel. Well, good morning. Uh, it's a real pleasure and joy to be gathered here this morning. In worship with you all, the last few weeks have been a real time of change, haven't they? With the, the clocks going back, um, it certainly feels like we've been fast-forwarded into winter. The air is colder, the leaves and the trees are disappearing, and it's very, very wet. But it's also been a time of political change too, hasn't it? Uh, we've had massive U-turns um, on budgets, a massive swing in polls, and we even have a new prime minister. It took only five days for Liz Truss to be uh, sworn, uh, to, for her to resign, for Rishi Sunak to come in as our new prime minister. Previously, it was a whole two months. 
when Boris Johnson resigned before Liz Truss was chosen as leader of the Conservative Party. If these last few weeks have shown us anything, it's that change can happen very, very quickly. However, there are some things in life that feel like they just never change. Among the vast political coverage in the last uh, week on the news, you may have missed an announcement of an autobiographical book by Prince Harry. Um, you can see it on the screen there. Nothing much is known about the book other than its title, Spare, but it gives us a big clue. It's been speculated that the title has been chosen because of Harry's status as a spare royal. After all, it's his brother William who is favoured, the one who is to inherit the crown and the royal estate. No doubt Harry has times felt like a spare William. It's common knowledge that these two brothers have an icy relationship, um, but in the past few years it's clear that this coldness has increased. Now with Harry distancing himself from his family identity, with dropping his royal duties and relocating to the US, we can only anticipate that these siblings are becoming estranged. And it's tragic, but these family breakdowns are sadly common. Research by the UK charity Stand Alone that supports estranged people has found that one in five families in the UK will be affected by estrangement, and that over five million people have decided to cut contact with at least one family member. These figures, that, they reveal that if estrangement doesn't affect us directly, it almost certainly affects someone that we love. Fern Schumer Chapman, uh, an author of a book called Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, who was estranged from her only brother for 40 years, described her estrangement like an acid drip on the brain. She says, quote, I always knew in the back of my mind that my brother didn't want a relationship with me. If my own family doesn't want a relationship with me, then who does want a relationship with me? It's heartbreaking. It seems that when it comes to family dynamics, some things feel like they never change, even when we so desperately want them to. But for Fern, she did eventually see change. After 40 years of pain, she was able to reconcile with her brother and he even helps her write her book to hold out hope to other siblings that reconciliation can happen. Now, it should be said that the relationship breakdown occurs for all sorts of reasons. Some people are just so toxic that we just need to, to break off a relationship to protect our minds and our bodies. But some of us are too quick to do this, and others are too slow. But... Broken relationships really can change, and, and when it happens, there's nothing more joyful, nothing more beautiful, and today's passage shows us just that. You see, Jacob, like Prince Harry, is no stranger to broken family relationships. Uh, he too comes from a family, plays with favoritism, with a great inheritance that was set to belong to the older brother. It's just that, unlike Harry, Jacob deceives his brother into receiving his birthright and his father into giving him his blessing. But in doing so, Jacob tore his family apart. He, he flees to his uncle Laban in Haran because his brother Esau is so angry that he wants to kill him. Decades go on and these brothers just haven't seen each other. The result is that Jacob and Esau are just completely estranged from one another. 
But last week, we read how this is all about to change. In the previous chapter of Genesis, we read how Jacob reaches out to Esau. And and for the benefit of those who weren't here last week, I'm just going to quickly catch you up to speed with what's happened in the story so far. So chapter 32 begins with Jacob journeying towards Canaan after fleeing from his uncle Laban. He's come a very long way. Uh, Ali, if you just... Yeah, you can see there's um, a map on the screen. So uh, following this red line, you can see that Jacob has uh, traveled with his family hundreds of miles south uh, from Haran in a region known as Paran, uh, Padan Aram towards Canaan, um, the place of Jacob's birth and his land of his inheritance. And Jacob reaches the Jabbok River right next to the border of Canaan. Um, you can see there um, a zoomed-in map um, you can see also the Jordan River, and well, the sun's on it, so you can't see it. Um, but anyway, the point is that Jacob is nearly at the end of his journey. Uh, he's just at the, f- the footstep of Canaan. Um, and Jacob has a vision of some angels uh, in this place. And, and he's reassured of God's presence. And suddenly Jacob has this urge to reach out to his brother Esau to seek reconciliation. He sends out an envoy to Esau to test the temperature uh, and how he would respond to his homecoming. And no doubt, I think Esau just gave nothing away because all that Jacob hears is that Esau is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. And Jacob responds with just fear and panic. The last time he saw his brother, he wanted to kill him. And now he's coming with an army. So Jacob defines, he, he responds by dividing his camp into two. As damage limitation, he prays a lengthy prayer uh, to God, and he sends forth droves of cattle as an offering to appease Esau. And finally, Jacob is—he's left alone, and his family has has travelled over the river, and he's left alone. And Jacob here he he wrestles with a man until daybreak, uh, a man later identified as God. And and this is a transformative moment for Jacob, after wrestling through the night. The man wrangled his hip out of his socket. But Jacob is clinging on to him, and he demands desperately for this man to bless him. So the man responds by giving Jacob a new name, Israel, because he has struggled with God and man, and he has overcome. And Jacob believes him. After he leaves, he says, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob's life is spared, and and so although crippled by his hip injury, Jacob is reassured of God's blessing and is ready to face Esau. This is where our passage today starts, and having just read it, we know how the story ends, don't we? Jacob and Esau, they, they reconcile, and in my opinion, it's possibly one of the most beautiful, heartwarming accounts in the Old Testament. So let's explore in this passage, what we can learn about what God is saying to us about reconciliation. Let's begin by returning to the passage. If you've got your Bibles, please have them open. Um, And we're just going to read the first three verses leading up to Esau and Jacob's reconciliation. So look down at verses one to three with me. It says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servant and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. 
Um, there's three things that I want us to notice here about Jacob. The first is that Jacob, having gathered his family, goes on ahead of them. He would have been limping from his dislocated hip, so he would have gone very slowly. Um, and he's not cowering behind anyone. He's not, um, you know, he's weak and he's injured and he's exhausted from a night of wrestling. But what we see is a, is a Jacob who's determined to meet Esau. He's not cowarding anymore. Secondly, we see that the narrator doesn't spare any ink to tell us about Jacob's emotional state, like he did in the previous chapter, where we are told of great, Jacob's great fear and distress. The, the absence of any description simply suggests that Jacob's approach to Esau is just without alarm. And finally, we read of how Jacob bows seven times prostrate as he approaches his brother. And, and this is significant. If you can remember back to chapter 27 uh, of Genesis, when Isaac blesses a disguised Jacob, he says that he would be lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. Yet we're, here we have Jacob bowing down to Esau. He, he's attempting to reverse this blessing, the blessing that was due Esau. And it's not just the bowing down that suggests this. That the abundance of cattle that Jacob has sent in droves ahead of him appear to be a kind of restitution for Esau's missing blessing. Evidently, Jacob is sorry for what he did to his brother all those decades ago, and he is determined to be reconciled. So what these three verses show us is that this isn't Jacob approaching Esau. This is Israel. This is the new Jacob. And it's clear that Jacob had all sorts of barriers that have prevented him thus far from pursuing reconciliation with his brother. But those have gone, and he's overcome them. So how did Jacob get to this place? Well, to understand this, we first need to understand what, what are the barriers that prevent us from pursuing reconciliation. And from the account of Jacob, I've identified three. So that is apathy, pride, and fear. First, apathy. I'm sure those of you with small children know that uh, getting them to say sorry can be like getting blood out of a stone. Often it's because they just don't seem bothered that their sibling is crying whilst they're playing with their stolen toy. It can take a lot of persuasion to make a child understand the importance of reconciliation. And us adults are not much better. Often the barrier is that we just don't care. We're apathetic. An article from Psychology Today said this about apathy. Through much psychological research, it's now accepted science that you must experience feelings about something if you're going to take personal actions on it. And without any compelling emotion to direct your behavior, you just aren't sufficiently stimulated to do much of anything. This is the first barrier to reconciliation. If we're not bothered enough, to travel the hard road of reconciliation, we will remain distant from our friends and our family. So how do we start caring? Well, how did Jacob start caring? I mean, Jacob seemed pretty apathetic those decades ago to the whole situation that unfolded. And it's, it's not so clear from the text what changed. But perhaps Jacob did a lot of thinking as he journeyed down the same road he went along all those years ago, after his family broke down. Jacob made this journey because God told him to. Uh, it would seem that at first it was 
to get away from Laban, who was exploiting him, but this journey's destination is Canaan. And so actually Jacob finds himself going on a journey towards his past. Sometimes God opens up things of the past, things that we rather forget about, because he's calling us not to be apathetic any longer. And opening the past can be painful, and no doubt it's been painful for Jacob. But the pain makes us care, and so does God. God cares. After Jacob's spiritual encounter with some angels at the start of the last chapter, Jacob decides now is the time to reach out to Esau. God reveals that he's with Jacob, and perhaps this is why he had the courage to reach out to Esau at all. But apathy isn't the only barrier. We need to overcome our pride too if we are to reconcile with someone. It takes a great deal of humility to apologize for mistakes we have made. In today's world, our world leaders rarely show this quality. Their public credibility and reputation is just too precious. It took weeks of economic turmoil, public outrage, and U-turns for Liz Trust to apologize for the mistakes her administration made. And when she did, it made headlines. How sad is it that it's so rare for our leaders to apologize for their mistakes that it makes headlines when they do? But we're not too different. Perhaps you desire to be reconciled with a family member and you're upset that your relationship isn't the same as what it was. But if you're not willing to consider your responsibility in the breakdown of that relationship, then that's pride preventing you from reconciling. Sometimes this is made harder by the fact that fallouts are rarely 100% one person's fault. So we can easily see ourselves as the only victim. But often relationships break down and there's two victims, there's two perpetrators. We're all sinful after all. It requires humility to consider what we have done, the mistakes that we have made, and it takes even greater humility to admit them without trying to justify our decisions and actions. But without this, we won't have reconciliation. So how did Jacob overcome his pride? Well, it seems that this is something that God has been doing for decades. It started with Jacob's vision of God in Bethel, then decades of work under his uncle Laban, no doubt, humbled him. But I think most of all, Jacob was humbled by his night of wrestling with God. Jacob was left clinging to God with no other hope but for God to bless him. And from this wrestling, he was left assured that God was on his side, despite all the wrong he had done. And this experience was deeply humbling, but it meant that Jacob was able to overcome his pride so that he would seek reconciliation. Sometimes God humbles us for this very purpose. But even if you're not apathetic, and perhaps you're humble enough to admit the wrong you've done, fear can be a barrier, a final barrier to overcome. In the past, when I've prepared for job interviews, I try to prepare for typical questions that might come up. Um, and one such question is, what is your greatest weakness? For which my answer is typically that I'm too agreeable. Mostly because it's a weakness that at least makes me sound like a nice person. But being conflict avoidant is not a good thing. It has the power to break down relationships because we are unwilling to resolve the issues that keep us apart. Often our fears are to do with bringing up the past, to, to remind the person the pain that you cause them, 
and you fear their anger. Or maybe we fear our own sense of shame for bringing up the past ourselves. Or perhaps it's fear that even if you bring up the past and you try to reconcile, what if it doesn't lead to anything and your relationship is still broken? Fear has the power to really take hold of us. And no doubt it's fear that Jacob was wrestling with the day before meeting Esau. So how did he overcome it? Well, Jacob prayed. He clung to God's promises. And then he wrestled with God until he was assured of his blessing. He had to trust God that he would hold fast to his promises and and Jacob would inherit the land of his father to be his possession. And in wrestling with God, he found assurance that his life had been delivered. But we as Christians also have this assurance that God has delivered us from death through Christ. If fear is our barrier, we need to be willing to wrestle with God to truly believe all his promises if we are able to face our fears that prevent us from reconciling. For Jacob, God has had an active role in breaking down his barriers. And it's the same for us. It's a work of God's reconciliation. So if you're here today and you too are having trouble overcoming these barriers, know this, that God is faithful to his promises. He is with you in your brokenness and his grace is enough. So we've considered the barriers to reconciliation. Let's consider the beauty of reconciliation. Returning to the passage, we have Jacob, who is, who's courageously approaching his brother despite all consequences. How does Esau respond? Well, verse 4 says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and his neck and kissed him. And they wept. In stark contrast to Jacob's limping, Esau runs to his brother. But not to do violence against Jacob, as one would expect, but to embrace him with a kiss. And this kiss is significant, because it was Jacob's kiss that alienated the brothers when Jacob deceived Isaac into thinking that he was Esau. What, is, what follows is this, this beautiful reunion. Jacob introduces his family, his children, his wife to Esau, and it's, and it's a really heartwarming moment. You may remember a few years ago an ITV program called Long Lost Family. It was a show that was hosted by Davina McCall and Nikki Campbell, and the program connects people who have long lost relatives who for many years have been estranged. And there's a lot of detective work as uh, they look into the family history. And, and it's, but it's really, it's the heartfelt reunions that really make this show so captivating. One reviewer from the Metro said this about the show. However cynical you set out to be, the stories of babies given up for adoption, decades of guilt, and the reunion they thought that would never happen can't help but soften the hardest heart. There's something about families being reunited that is so universally beautiful, so potent in its ability to evoke our deepest emotions. 
Well, perhaps we should consider today's passage as the oldest episode of Long Last Family. But what adds to the beauty of this passage is that Jacob does not deserve the response he gets from Esau for the wrong he did. But Esau is incredibly gracious. Not only does Esau embrace Jacob and his family so lovingly, but in verse 9, he also is reluctant to accept Jacob's generous gift, arguing that he has more than enough. He even warmly invites Jacob and his family to come live with him in Seir. Such warmth after years of hatred is what makes this even more beautiful. You could say it's not just the oldest, but it's the best episode of Long Lost Family. But there's an even greater story of reconciliation. You may have noticed that this episode has some similar details to a different story in Scripture, the parable of the prodigal son. It would seem that Jesus alludes to this scene when he describes the father of the prodigal son greeting his son in the same way as Esau, by running to him from a long way, embracing him with a kiss. Like Esau, the father in that story, much to the surprise of the son, embraces him not with judgment, the judgment he deserves, but with love and forgiveness. In that story, the father clearly represents God's, and so it is with today's passage that the full and free forgiveness that Esau displays towards his deceitful brother is a model of divine love. Jacob himself recognizes this when he says in verse 10, to see your face is like seeing the face of God's. Jacob knows he doesn't deserve grace, but just as the man who he wrestled with the night before spared his life, so does Esau. Perhaps the reason why this story of reconciliation and others like it are just so beautiful to us is precisely because they are foreshadows of this great reconciliation, this divine reconciliation. That God, through Christ, atoning death on the cross means that we are not met with God's anger, but we are met with his love and grace. Perhaps today you're someone who feels estranged from God. You fear to approach God because you fear his anger. But know this, that the grace, that love and love that Esau shows to Jacob here is just a glimmer of the grace and love that God is revealing to us through his son. So far, we've considered the barriers and the beauty of reconciliation. So as we close today, I would just like us to finish off by considering the benefits of reconciliation. For Jacob, the, the benefits are immediately obvious, aren't they? He no longer has to fear Esau's wrath. He's assured that the blessing that his father is rightfully his. And Jacob can finish off his journey to Canaan with the assurance of God's blessing and presence. But what about his relationship to Esau? You may have noticed that the exchange between the brothers in verses 12 to 15 shows that Jacob doesn't fully trust Esau. Esau tries to encourage Jacob to return to Seir with him, but Jacob makes excuses not to travel with Esau, albeit politely. It is true that Jacob's journey isn't to take him to Seir, but to Canaan, the land of his inheritance. But Jacob doesn't say this. He, he doesn't give the impression that he, he, he gives this impression that he would follow his brother and then, and then never does. 
Perhaps Jacob felt too awkward to make mention of his intentions to travel to Canaan in fear of ruining this peace that the brothers have. Whatever the reason, it's clear that Jacob is being very cautious. And the reality is, this is to be expected. Fern Schumer Chapman, the author of the book I mentioned earlier, described that it took her and her brother many joint therapy sessions before she could even begin to trust him again and have a healthy, loving relationship. She says that without talking about the past and listening to each other, a once estranged relationship is very unlikely to feel safe again. Jacob and Esau don't make mention of their past, or at least scripture doesn't make reference to it. But what, what we do know from scripture is that these brothers do meet again. At the end of chapter 35 with Genesis, Isaac, their father, dies, and it's his sons, Jacob and Esau, who bury them. Although not perfect, we really conclude that this reconciliation is true and long-lasting. So how does this story end? Well, at the end of our passage today, we have a fitting conclusion. Looking down at verses 18 to 20, we see that this chapter ends with Jacob returning to his homeland. He purchases some canine, uh, Canaanite real estate, and he finishes his long journey from Paddan Aram, the area which Jacob left his uncle Laban. But Jacob also does something he's never done before. He builds an altar, a place to make sacrifices, sacrificial offerings to God. He names it El Elohi Israel, which means mighty is the God of Israel. Ultimately, Jacob's response to the last few days is one of worship. Perhaps one of the greatest benefits of Jacob's reconciliation with Esau is how it facilitates probably his most heartfelt expression of worship that scripture records. And Jesus also makes this connection between reconciliation and worship during the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying here is striking. Our horizontal relationships to each other, they really do affect our vertical relationship with God. And it's apparent priority to our horizontal relationship in Jesus' words. And this does make sense. If we are too apathetic, prideful, or fearful to confess our wrongdoing to our brother, are we really able to truly confess them to God? Perhaps, but what's clear is that Jesus desires us to be reconciled with each other. In the case where, well, particularly with the case when we're the perpetrator, at least. The passage today has shown us just how beautiful but important this is. And Jesus is saying that if you want to worship God more intimately, more truly, then you ought to be reconciled to the person who you've wronged. Otherwise, you're missing out on the deepest depths of worship and adoration towards God. And this is tough, <laughs> but let's not be discouraged. 
Today's passage has reminded us not just of the beauty and the benefits of reconciliation, but how God is there to help us through our barriers to it and to bring us into a place of joy, peace, and reconciliation. So let's ask God to help us in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we just lift up to you um, all those that we know who have family members estranged, or even us individually of relationships we know that they're not what they used to be. Lord, help us to recognize where we have been the cause of wrongdoing. Lord, help us to be humble to to recognize that. And Lord, help us to to come before you and, and know that we are forgiven by you. And Lord, may that be something that gives us the courage, knowing your presence with us, that we can go to our friend, our brother, our sister, and, and reconcile with them. And Lord, I just pray that you would really reassure us of your promises, of your, of your presence, because that is scary, Lord. It's frightening. But Lord, I pray that we would see and know that from this passage, there's some real beauty and benefits to pursuing that. So Lord, I just pray that you would really help us in our hearts to do that. Amen.